It's Tuesday, November 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A couple in California has filed a lawsuit against a fertility clinic that mixed up their embryos with another couple. Daphna and Alexander Cardinali carried the baby of another couple, gave birth to a baby girl, and raised her for four months until the couples decided to swap babies. The other couple was implanted with the Cardinali's embryo. Adam Wolf, attorney for the Cardinali family, joins us for what happened and the effort to never let this happen again. Next, there's a new etiquette for post-pandemic office life. Many still have anxieties about being back, and others are just rusty from being away for so long. Hugs and handshakes are out. Be honest with those close talkers so they give you that space. And it is okay to talk about vaccination status. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how to avoid the awkward return. Finally, there is such a thing as being too positive, and it could be very annoying. Positivity given in the wrong way is called toxic positivity, and it can come off as dismissive or condescending when you don't listen and just offer up platitudes like cheer up or try to have a better attitude. There is a better approach when someone just wants to vent to you. Elizabeth Bernstein, author of The Bonds Column at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on toxic positivity. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The struggle to guide our older daughter through losing the little sister she fell in love with and to understand the reality of what happened has been brutal. My heart breaks for her perhaps the most. Joining us now is Adam Wolf, attorney for the Cardinali family, who we're going to be speaking about, joins us now. Thanks for uh, joining us, Adam. Thanks very much for having me. Now, this is a pretty crazy story. I remember hearing about it kind of when it, uh, around the time that it happened, this was uh, in late 2019, about two couples who had an embryo mix-up. They went to the California Center for Reproductive Health to help conceive through in vitro fertilization, and there was a mix-up of the embryos. The, the two couples ended up getting each other's embryo and uh, carrying them to term and having the babies. But there wasn't a lot of details other than that around the time, but now we're Getting a little bit more, the one of the couples is opening up, Daphna and Alexander Cardinali. There's a lawsuit filed against the California Center Reprodu- uh, for Reproductive Health and a few others. And we're just learning more about this amazing story. Adam, you're representing the family. Uh, tell us how this played out for them, because there's some pretty heartbreaking stuff that happened throughout this. Alexander and Daphna, like millions of Americans, went to a fertility center because they were having trouble conceiving. That fertility center created an embryo for them and transferred an embryo to Daphna. Nine months later, when she gives birth, they were shocked, completely surprised, to say the least, when that child looks nothing like them. As it turns out, the clinic gave an embryo to Alexander and to Daphna that was not related to them. It was not their embryo. They made Daphna be an unwilling, unknowing surrogate to a stranger. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when the baby was finally born, uh, as you mentioned, it, it didn't really look like them. They have another daughter who has like blonde hair and all that. But the new baby's complexion was a little different. It had darker hair. And Alexander, the father, was kind of like a, a little concerned. He was asking the questions. They were saying, well, you know, we don't know what's going on. You know, we're this is our baby. She carried it to term. And uh, they kind of brushed it away for a little bit. But kind of those concerns kept persisting and that led them to get a DNA test at that point. That's right. They got a DNA test approximately two months after the birth and the results were horrifying. 
it showed that neither Alexander nor Daphna was related to their baby. How did that happen? It's because the clinic mixed up their embryo with the embryo of a complete stranger, another customer of the clinic. Those couples had the children of each other. And so they needed to do a baby swap, which they did about four months into their children's lives. I read in a couple other stories that they were getting together, spending time with each other, and it just kind of became a little untenable to the point where they both couples agreed, okay, we're going to switch our respective babies to have our own biological kids at that point. But even still, all that awkwardness kind of lingered. It's more than awkwardness that lingers. I mean, it is anger and fear and anxiety. I mean, you think about this from Daphne's perspective. She didn't get to birth her baby. Right. She didn't get to breastfeed her baby upon birth. She didn't feel her baby kick in utero. That the first time they saw their baby was when she was four months old over a picture on text message. As I mentioned, there is a lawsuit that's been filed now. For their part, though, what does the California Center for Reproductive Health say happened? How did they say that this mix-up occurred? We don't know how this happened, and there's no good explanation for it. This should not happen, this cannot happen, and it should never happen again. What are you guys seeking through the lawsuit? You know, we can't go back in time and change what happened. Nothing will ever make this right. We are seeking accountability from California Center for Reproductive Health and Dr. Moore. And we also want to shine a spotlight on this so that we can begin a conversation that leads to regulations and make sure this doesn't happen again. I saw somewhere that I guess uh, you guys might be looking for uh, a jury trial as well, uh, just to kind of play everything out and get as much of the information out there, uh, uh, I'm assuming, right? So we can kind of figure out what truly happened there. Correct. I mean, the first thing we're going to do is find out what happened, go through the discovery phase of the litigation. And then um, if it gets this far, we will try this case to a jury where jurors are going to need to assess what is the right amount of compensation for this complete tragedy. And in the end right now, I know there's a lot of trauma, obviously, for uh, Alexander and Daphna uh, with what's going on and everything. But I did read in another story that they have become close friends with the other couple. The other couple hasn't been interested in being identified or speaking out publicly and all this, but they do often get together. All of this happened, mind you, in late 2019. So a lot of all of this kind of transpired throughout the pandemic as well. These two couples going through this whole ordeal and as I mentioned, they spend time with each other, spend holidays with each other. So at least on that part, they've become good friends in that sense. They have become close. They still see their birth daughter, although not nearly as much as they used to. And they maintain those relationships. But those are relationships that never should have happened in the first place. Nobody should be put in this position. I mean, it's, you know, listen, I'm a, I'm a father. To think about meeting my child at four months old, having been given a name and not been there in the delivery room is horrifying to me. Adam Wolf, attorney for the Cardinale family, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And you can also kind of profess your own awkwardness. You can kind of, you know, like take one for the team and that can actually make people like you more. If you're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so awkward. They feel better about right. themselves. Joining us now is Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Well, a lot of people are headed back to work and, you know, everybody's hoping to avoid some of those awkward 
greetings again. Uh, you know, it's it's funny to think that we're at this stage right now where people are either out of practice or you just kind of don't know what to do. You don't know how comfortable people are with returning. I know there's a lot of anxiety behind that. I myself am a handshaker, so throughout the pandemic, I had to teach myself how to not <laughs> do that instinctively with people. <laughs> But that's kind of one of the things that people are encountering uh, when they go back to the office right now. So, Rachel, you wrote an article about new office etiquette in this kind of post-pandemic return to work now. So what are we looking at? I think the main idea is just to kind of like be cautious, ask. Sorry to tell you, but like, don't just automatically go in for that handshake. Don't go in for that hug. Kind of pause, see where people feel comfortable, mimic other people, you know, if they're putting on a mask. You know, just kind of take it one step at a time and understand that other people might have different, you know, proclivities or, or sensitivities than you. So uh, you kind of broke it down into a few uh, different ways to go about it. Saying hi, obviously, that's kind of the the, the first thing, you know. You, you mentioned that, um, you know, if you do go in and a person kind of pulls back, you know, apologize, maybe kind of talk about how awkward it is just to kind of uh, uh, bridge that gap at least. Yeah, and I should note also that etiquette experts told me it's not a huge faux pas. Don't feel that bad if you go in and the other person isn't that into it. Just just apologize. You know, say, oh, I'm so sorry. It's so natural, you know, for me to, to do that gesture. And you can also kind of profess your own awkwardness. You can kind of, you know, like take one for the team and that can actually make people like you more. If you're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so awkward. They feel better about themselves. This next one, this has kind of uh, been an issue since before the pandemic, the dreaded close talker. Some people kind of uh, don't observe that, I guess, I don't know, one and a half foot rule or something and, you know, get a little too close to you when they're talking. So it was a problem before, but now it could be an especially concerning thing. It's funny, right? I mean, and, and who knows what the exact right distance is now? Yeah, it was supposed to be about a foot and a half pre-COVID, but obviously we may have all changed a little bit too. And it's the same kind of idea. Start slow. Take a step back. Hopefully they respect that. If it seems like you need to take it up a notch, you could explain. You just, you know, you're not used to being around people. You don't quite feel comfortable yet. And it seems like they have a weird reaction to that. Like they're getting upset. You can say like, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me just pause. I, it seems like that's, you know, upsetting to you. I didn't mean to upset you. That's not what I meant at all. You know, experts told me just name it. Don't like sit there with the awkwardness, with the elephant in the room. Just kind of like call it out a little bit, you know, in, in a kind way. Now, this next one, masking up is an interesting one. At my workplace, we, you know, we're still supposed to be wearing our masks in the common areas. I always have it on. But sometimes I run past somebody that doesn't have it on and then it turns into this kind of this awkward thing where they look at me and they say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm going to go put my mask on right now. And for me, I don't care. I'm wearing my own mask. But there's an etiquette to asking somebody to mask up and, you know, that could be a little awkward as well. Obviously, people just make mistakes. Some of this is also just about how to kind of be a little bit persuasive. You can use the kind of like, it's not you, it's me type of thing. Like, my kids are in school and they have a lot of exposure and I don't want to get anyone sick or, you know, I'm so sorry, I have an immunocompromised family member at home or I'm seeing a friend who's high risk. Anything you can do to kind of not single out the other person will, will make them feel better and ease any, any awkwardness that there is. And then the big one, uh, when it comes to talking about vaccination status, you know, it's not a, a, a violation of workplace policies or anything if you ask somebody, but it does get a little complicated when you start asking around about other people. But uh, overall, you could, you know, talking one on one to somebody, it is kind of OK to to ask them if they've been vaccinated. 
Yes, legally HIPAA is not a thing here. You can ask a coworker if they've been vaccinated. If you ask a manager if someone else has been vaccinated, that's kind of a no-go that can violate confidentiality provisions of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But you can ask a coworker. You could even say, like, just from an etiquette perspective, is it okay if I ask you, you know, about your vaccination status? And an etiquette expert told me, like, this is not a faux pas right now. We're in, you know, a public health crisis. And, you know, things that may have been kind of taboo before are, are no longer. And this is something that we that you can talk about. You just need to approach it a bit gingerly. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. People struggle with diseases, struggle with their jobs, and struggle with their families. And if someone's trying to tell you about a real challenge they're going through, and you're just trying to point out some silver lining um, that may be just a Band-Aid on their pain, that is not going to be good for them. Joining us now is Elizabeth Bernstein, reporter at The Wall Street Journal and writer of the column Bonds at The Journal as well. It's about relationships. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting one that you wrote about uh, about positivity and how sometimes it could be too much and how sometimes it can get very annoying very quickly. Toxic positivity, uh, which is positivity given in the wrong way. Elizabeth, walk us through this. What, what are we seeing with this? I think we all know that being positive is a very good coping skill. It is good for us to try to always look at the bright side. Not always, but it is good for us to look at the bright side, to try to see the good in things. However, we can go too far. We can go too far with ourselves, forcing ourselves to be positive, and we can go too far forcing others to be positive. And and that has really terrible ramifications, really. It's very bad for our well-being. It's bad for our relationships. And the psychologists call it toxic positivity. It's forcing yourself to be positive when you're not. And if you're talking to somebody and you're just trying to be overly positive, you know, it can come off, uh, you know, invalidating. It can come off as dismissive of somebody's problems. Sometimes they just want an ear. They just want to vent about something and you're not giving it to them at that point. Uh, So you're just not listening. I mean, some people, it might not be, you know, of course, you know, nobody wants to be around sort of the Debbie Downer who's never, ever saying anything that's upbeat or can't see good in anything. But people have very real problems. People struggle with diseases, struggle with their jobs and struggle with their families. And if someone's trying to tell you about a real challenge they're going through and you're just trying to point out some silver lining um, that may be just a Band-Aid on their pain, that is not going to be good for them. It's not going to help them. And it isn't going to help your relationship because it's dismissive. They're just going to resent you. You're not being supportive. You uh, started off the story with an example. With uh, It was a story about a, a father speaking to his daughter. Uh, his wife, at the end of that phone call, said, man, that was really annoying, <laughs> you know, calling him out on that. How, how did that one play out? It was great. I talked to this guy, Chip Hooley. He says, uh, you know, he's always been a really upbeat guy. You know, one of these people that jumps out of bed and they like skip to work. So he has a daughter who's a young adult or an adult. She's she's in her early 30s. And she is uh, bought uh, during the pandemic, right at the beginning of the pandemic, she had just bought an apartment in Brooklyn, in New York with her husband. And uh, now weeks later, the city is 
just a ghost town. Real estate prices are dropping. People are fleeing the city because of the pandemic. And she's panicked. And she calls her dad. And she's trying to tell him how worried she is about, you know, the investment of this apartment and, you know, her friends leaving. And and he just won't hear it. And he interrupts her. And he says, you know, don't worry, honey, it's going to work out for the best. Gives her a big pep talk, you know, all of these positive things. He says when he gets off the phone, he literally said, I felt like Batman saving the world. I just (laughs) given her this positive spin. He's all puffed up happy. And his wife is sitting next to him and she says, you know, that is the most annoying conversation I've ever heard. And she made a good point. She said, your daughter wanted to talk to her dad. She just wanted to talk and you didn't listen to him. And so he goes on and now thinks about this. This is why I get to talk to him. And he's trying to be better. (laughs) He's trying to be more based in reality now. But it was a sweet thing because it gets to why we do this. We do this because we don't want to feel bad. We can't stand when people we love feel bad either. You made mention in the article, too, we're kind of all guilty about this. For many people, that's how you're brought up, you know, uh, to not feed off of the bad feelings so much. And, uh, you you know, you make mention, you pick yourselves up when you fall, stop complaining, count your blessings, all those types of things. We kind of grow up with it. So we conditioned ourselves, in a sense, to go that way. But it can be pretty harmful, as you mentioned earlier, too, to stifle some of these bad emotions, to acknowledge that reality. Exactly. You know, it's not good for us. We do sort of raise this way, like, hey, pick yourself up, get going, get back on the horse. Like, you know, so um, and, and our society wants a quick fix. And we're so focused on this idea of and think of the phrase winning attitude. Like if you have a good attitude, if you're positive, you're going to win. Well, it may not be the case. You could maybe have a bad attitude and still get some stuff done. But we are conditioned uh, by society, by, you know, the way we're raised to do this. It, it can hurt ourselves because we cannot push away bad emotions. Neurologists, uh, neuroscientists, they know that this is going to pop back up. You, can, you cannot suppress emotions. And in fact, the amount of energy it takes to try to suppress that emotion that's difficult only makes you stay focused on it. So it's still right there with you. You're just pushing at it. And so we know that these emotions are going to pop back up. And then we do when they do, you're going to have to deal with them. So might as well deal with them now. The right positivity is hope and optimism. And those are based in reality. Like they're not based in la-la land. Hope has, you know, something that we truly believe can happen at the end of that sort of goal of it. So so that's what we want to strive for, the the positivity that's based on reality. And one big message, too, along with this is, you know, a lot of times if somebody comes to you and they want to talk to you in that sense, you know, they just want to, they want you to listen. They want to vent. You don't necessarily have to give advice. Uh, They just want you to kind of understand what they're going through. And I think that's an important distinction, too. I think it's huge. I think people don't realize that a friend or loved one comes to you and they're telling you about a problem. You know, I think we we feel like we have to fix it. We want to help them. And we think that help is somehow giving them something concrete that will make them feel better and we and, and will fix this. And we've, we don't really realize listening will fix it. You know, they're alone in their problem. Maybe they just want to be heard. We all like very deeply want to be heard. And you can tell somebody else is forcing positivity on you when you, you don't feel it. Hey, you know what? I don't need you to fix it. I'm not looking for a silver lining. I just want to talk about it. I just want someone to acknowledge, yeah, this stinks. Elizabeth Bernstein, reporter at the Wall Street Journal and writer of the Bonds column about relationships. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.